The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. And again, a big welcome, everyone in the room here. And most of you know this, but for those of you who are new to the community, we have this uh, central spiritual practice we call dana. It's not just meant in terms of how you relate to the center, but really how we relate to everyone and everything in our lives. And it's this uh, a little bit similar to how we were practicing today during the guided meditation, you know, the sensitivity of the heart. And one of the things that sensitivity to our heart reveals is everything's in motion. Have you noticed? Like, it's like, it isn't a static thing when we feel our heart. It feels quite alive. And the more we attune to the qualities of our heart, we feel that circle of giving and receiving. And so in Buddhism, sometimes we say we live, we operate, we exist in this relational world. And it's a beginning of uh, dropping whatever materialistic, fundamentalist idea you have about life, about the world, you know, we were tadpoles, then we were fish, and then and now we have a body, and inside the body's a brain, and inside that brain somehow the mind and heart arise. That's the materialist view, which is interesting story. <laughs> that can be useful in kind of figuring things out, but we should hold that view lightly. That's my opinion, and I think the Buddha might say something similar. I mean, he definitely taught very strongly not to cling to any fixed views, including materialism for sure. He definitely rejected materialism as an ultimate truth. And uh, so, what might be more useful as a relative truth, because it lines, aligns with our subjective experiences, everything seems to be moving, and it, everything seems to be relational. Like, we're always relating to the present moment, and in a way, the way we're relating contributes something to the present moment, right? We get something back in that circle of giving and receiving. We can't help it. And that's true with our lovers and our children and our cats and dogs and our neighbors and our workplaces and our communities and our wider world. We're in relationship. And we're always giving, whether we know it or not, and we're always receiving something back. We're receiving, you could say, the karmic fruit of how we're relating. That's what we give back, get back. So common ground and your relationship to common ground is just a way to practice that circle. Nobody can tell us how to do it. It would be so much easier if somebody said, this is how you come into relationship with your partner, this is how you come into relationship with your cat, or your dharma center, or whatever. But we have to find our own way, but we have the sensitivity of our heart to give us feedback. We keep the heart in mind, and we realize, oh, I like it or not, I do have a relationship with Common Ground Meditation Center. How does it feel? <laughs> you know, how does it feel? And we keep experimenting until it feels good. It's a cause for happiness, a sense of safety. It's like the ongoing taste or the ongoing reverberation, it feels good. 
if we're overcommitted, if we give too much, if we make it too much of our life, when we check in and see how it feels, it won't feel good. Maybe we feel codependent or maybe we feel like the weight of common ground rests on my shoulders. I felt that way at times, right? And it's unhealthy. It's not the way to, for me to be in relationship to common ground. You know, for me, it's more complicated. It's my workplace and I'm the co-founder and things like that. But, uh, but each of us, we feel in and we experiment. And if we neglect our relationship, we'll notice, well, how does that feel? Until the relationship, whenever we attune, it leaves a good taste. It's like, oh, that feels really good. No unpleasant reverberations. No need to make amends. And it becomes like our, each of our relationships we bring this kind of awareness to, they become these alive monuments to wisdom and love. So if you have like a really clean, wholesome, beautiful, alive relationship with your four-legged friend, whatever that is in your life, or your neighbor, neighbor's kid, or some uncomplicated relationship where it's more easy to do this, then that relationship, when you, whenever you remember it, whenever it's there sort of in the forefront, it really is a kind of monument to the possibility of being in relationship in a way that's liberating and free and leaves a good taste and a cause for happiness, right? And it's a joy whenever you remember that relationship, let alone have a chance to interact with that place, that person, that creature, or whatever it is, the birds at your bird feeder. And you see, the more we bring this kind of wisdom, awareness, loving awareness to more and more relationships, then our whole life starts to come alive to be a support of happiness and love and wisdom. And we begin, you know, just starting where it's relatively easy and we bring these teachings in, okay, there's so much we don't have control over, but I definitely get to participate in terms of how I'm relating. So when you come to Common Ground, when you think of Common Ground, when you come on a Zoom meeting with Common Ground, when you, whenever, you're in relationship with Common Ground, the teachers, the community, these teachings, <clears throat> feel it as a living thing, that relationship. And there's a feeling there as all that movement moves. How does it feel? Can it feel even more enlivening, more healing, more supportive, more good. Well, let me see. Let me play with how I'm relating, how I'm showing up, how I'm receiving, how I'm giving. And maybe for some of you, this seems like a pretty radical way to meet our annual budget <laughs> or things like that, or to support our teachers and staff so they can have a reasonable livelihood, but it, it's worked now for 29 years, this circle of giving and receiving. We don't fundraise really, we don't talk about money except as the spiritual practice. But of course, if you have practical questions about how you wanna get involved in that circle of giving and receiving, just talk to me or you could talk to Ruth, who's in the room somewhere over here, who's our program host, 
uh, tonight or today, this morning, and uh, just check in, and we'll give you any specific information you need. You could always check with the, the on the website. We have more information, and in the link um, in the chat for those of you who are online, you can find more information about that. But it's just good for me to mention that, and I encourage other people who've been in the community for several years feel like you've been thoughtful about that circle, that it doesn't always have to be me in the programs that I lead giving the Donna talk, we call it. You know, Donna is generally translated as generosity. It's a Pali word. But we sometimes leave it untranslated. We use that word Donna because it, it's so much richer than how we, in our own language system, you know, we think of generosity as a heavy should. You know, I should do something here. And that's not the idea. The idea is some to, yeah, find a way to be more enlivened and liberated through the inevitability. We are in relationship. To be in denial is a particular strategy that I suggest doesn't work very well. Like to be in relationship with a partner, but to not want to be in that relationship or to pretend you're not in relationship is not a very healthy strategy for having a partner or a pet or a neighbor, or any kind of relationship. What seems, the, the basic principle that seems to work is to be more and more conscious of all the relationships we're inevitably in. Initially, it's scary. It's like, I don't want the responsibility of having to be in relationship with my life, my body, my own mind, let alone all of you, all of this, Get me out of here. And to some degree, we all check out that strategy of get me out of here, it's too much. So hopefully, we're paying just enough attention to realize it doesn't really work to disconnect, to not to want to be in relationship, because it comes with life. You know, it is a relational life or world that we live in. There's really no alternative. So uh, I'll leave some time, you know, we usually end at 11.45, and those of you in the room, and those of you online, uh, there will be some time, Not yet. it's just optional, of course, but you can stay here at 11.45 or stay on the Zoom meeting, and Shannon, I believe, is here today to help us organize the online small groups of three or four people, and Ruth and I will organize the people in the space, and for 15 minutes or so, you can just have a relaxed conversation. And what we've been talking about since <clears throat> early July is just this question about refuge. And just this honest question, as a human being, do I need a refuge, a spiritual refuge? And that's an open question. No one should tell us, yes, you need a refuge, and I just got the ticket for you, but it's $25. <laughs> <laughs> but it will work. But just to be curious, like, do I need a refuge? And then what's the alternative to not having a refuge? What would be something like just letting everything rip? Like letting the habits of my mind do what the habits of my mind are suggesting that I do. So the way I'm in relationship to my experience, to those around me, I just let the predominant habits, the habits that have the most momentum, call the shots. 
happy to just let nature take its course. It almost sounds spiritual. Like, I just want to follow the habits of the mind. You know, and, and basically people try that. In a way, on the surface, it looks like the easy way because that's the force of habit. It's the predominant forces. Oh, why resist? And then if we see in our lives that that doesn't, hasn't really worked so well for ourselves or for those around us, then we might open to the possibility, you know what, I think I might have to train the mind. So instead of following the habits of the mind, we realize it's actually quite liberating, but it can be intimidating that the mind, whatever the mind is, which is for sure a mystery, one thing is for sure, it can be trained. Like where did our current habit energies come from? Well, they were just conditioned in via impersonal conditioning processes, like being raised in the cultures, the conditioning circumstances that we were raised in, like by our parents and the proximity to the friends and the culture that we were raised in. Well, we can participate in how this heart-mind gets conditioned. We can cultivate new habits, can't we? And we can be aware, like one of the new habits we can cultivate is an awareness of the existing habits. And we can not only be aware of the existing tugs and impulses of the heart and mind, we can cultivate a particular way to frame those impulses, those habit energies. Oh, that's just a habit energy. It's not really me in the kind of normal way that I think of it. Like when I have a lustful impulse or an irritable, you know, defensive, aversive impulse, and I see that, that's not really me, that's just a habit that's there. In a sense, I need to take responsibility for these tendencies of my mind, but it's not really correct for me to think that's me. I didn't choose to be irritable when I'm irritable. That pattern arose because of natural causes and conditions, like the habits got set in motion, got reinforced, and then there they are, those pre predominant tendencies of this mind. We have to live with it, we have to take responsibility, but we don't have to personalize it, and it really helps us have a more open and skillful relationship with our habit energies to see them as impersonal forces. Much the same as when you show up and work in your, your job scenes, you realize, oh, there's this person with their set of habit energies and that person with that set of habit, and I'm not responsible for who they are or their habit energies, but I am responsible for coming into relationship with them, including leaving my job, if that's the way I'm gonna be in relationship with them. Sometimes turning away, leaving, is the way we choose to relate. Other times we relate by staying put and discovering more and less skillful ways to relate to this person's pattern or that pattern of that person, right? It's not like it's just one pattern in each person. You know, they have their demons and their angels that come up depending on other impersonal triggers that show up for all of us.
This goes back to this being a relational world. So if, if we, when we get a sense that this is the world we live in, we realize, I do need a refuge. Because the alternative is for us to be swept away or pushed around. I'm being triggered. When I'm triggered, some predominant habit then manifests. That generally triggers others. That triggers their strong habit energies, which trigger me. Endless, this is the endlessness of samsara, right? That word, maybe you know it. It's like the simple translation of samsara, the endlessness of the cycles of suffering. How the experience of suffering causes stuff to happen that triggers more suffering, and there's an endlessness. One of the imponderables that the Buddha talks about, I think there were three of them, the, the sort of depth or liberation of wisdom, like our understanding, is an imponderable. You can't understand it conceptually. The power of a concentrated mind and the endlessness of karma and samsara. <laughs> How suffering begets suffering, basically. Can't really be comprehended. It isn't like our normal understanding that there's a definitive beginning a definitive end. It just keeps going on and on. And even in physics, you know, like we thought, oh, there's a big bang and there will be, you know, whatever is at the end of the big bang, the big implosion or something. But then, you know, the newer physics, it's like, no, no, it's not just one big bang. <laughs> it's an endless process, right? No beginning, no end. It's a little bit like what we see when we watch the mind, the ongoingness of one thing leading to the next. So when we get this, then we realize, oh, I, we really are in need of a refuge, a way of, a kind of something out of the box, because the normal way that we relate to seeing samsara is one of two ways, which is, I am going to get on top of this. I'm going to finally control. Every relationship in my life is going to be perfect. I will exterminate all the messiness. <laughs> Sometimes we think about certain societies. I have never been to Singapore, but it has a reputation of one, being oppressive, sorry, <laughs> and two, being tidy. You know, as a, at least the city scenes, you know. And so this is sort of our, like, okay, we're going to, we're going to be that controlling type and really get it together. And uh, either we've been that person and know how oppressive that is, or we've lived or been friends with someone like that and know how oppressive it is, right? And the other is, you know, just sort of giving up and the route of distractedness. Let me just jump from one absorption, you know, this hobby, this sport, this nice media, get absorbed, so that I don't really take the time to feel what it feels like to be a human being and to have a sensitive heart. That would be my strategy. So that's the alternative 
to this uh, humble search. As I mentioned, I think a couple of weeks ago, who knows something about what to do? And the Buddha, you know, he has a pointing out, yeah, well, we don't understand what this is well enough to know how to relate to this. So the first thing we have to do is we have to find ways to stabilize, to cultivate the heart, the mind, that can see clearly or that can be open with no filter, no agenda, no frame. So this practice of mindful awareness is, you know, first and foremost, we need to find a relatively safe time and place where we can experiment, not trying to make something happen, but just being present, just being open. Because as I mentioned in the guided meditation today, we can't both be trying to control or fix or get somewhere and really seeing, feeling the way it is. Because the expectation, the striving, the trying to get somewhere gets in the way, it distorts the way it is. So like I always use the example of a naturalist. If you're going to be a really good naturalist, you don't create an artificial environment like bring the, if we took a raccoon from the west side of the Mississippi River, which is real close to common ground here, you know, and put it in a cage, in a laboratory, we're not going to see very naturalistic behaviors of the raccoon. Because the way to really get what a raccoon is, is to sit quietly in a relaxed way that doesn't trigger the raccoon in its own environment and let the raccoon be a raccoon. If you want to know what the heart is, the mind is, and the body is, this life is, the world is, we have to put aside some time. And those times you're not a parent, you're not an activist, you're not for or against anything except it's like we're sort of this embodied sensitivity, receptivity, this embodied openness, right? So we're using the natural sensitivity of the mind and heart to let the world, let the moment, let the experience of our mind, the experience of our body, let it in a sense land in the sensitivity of the body, heart and mind. Oh. It's like this now, feels like this now. In a way, we're learning how to collect clean data. It's the hardest thing in the world. It's like, have you noticed those of you who raise kids or those of you who've had a long-term partner or those of you who've had a pet or those of you who have had a life, have you noticed that when we're interacting or relating how hard it is not to have an agenda. I was looking through some Carlos Castaneda quotes. I don't know if people know him. It's funny. He was such a big deal back when I was a young adult. And uh, 
now, maybe there's people who don't know him, but he wrote a series of books about his, I guess I should say, alleged teacher, because there's some controversy whether Don Juan, his teacher, who is a shaman from Mexico, indigenous shaman from Mexico, truly existed, or is a combination of different people, or not at all a person, but just Carlos Castaneda's own musings, I'm not sure, but for at least in my case, and I think I speak for a lot of people, there was a lot of useful wisdom in those books, at least back then. But I was <laughs> I came across this one. Let's see if I can find it. <laughs> one was it takes all the time and energy we have to conquer the idiocy in us. Oh here it is. The hardest thing in the world is the hardest thing in the world is for a warrior. And he uses the word warrior, Don Juan, Carlos's teacher. So Carlos, by the way, was a PhD anthropologist somewhere, maybe UCLA or one of those uh, universities in Southern California. And he wrote his dissertation about his interactions with Don Juan. And uh, so his teacher, Don Juan, said, the hardest thing in the world is for a warrior to let others be. And it's true. And we could expand that to say the hardest thing for us practitioners is to let the moment be. To let the feeling and the heart be. Which is like I mentioned at the beginning of the guided sit, to be willing to be a humble student and let our teacher, which is the moment, the movement of the moment, to let the movement the way it is, be the way it is leave its impression on a sensitive heart. And we become, instead of becoming this solid certainty, arrogant certainty, okay, I know the way, I know what I should do, I know who I am, I know what's bad, I know what's good, we only really have the sense of how to respond in this moment from this tender-hearted, you could even say, I think, broken, wounded, vulnerable, sensitive place. And because we're willing to be uncertain, willing to acknowledge that I don't know, then we can actually have a more honest sense of what's moving so that our response, which sometimes will need to be a really assertive response in the moment, like we'll actually need to say something loud and do something powerful, but it's going to come from that tender-hearted, exposed, vulnerable place. Because that's where we connect. That's where we feel. And then our response is coming from that breadth and depth of that connection. But whenever we feel like we got a plan, we got a good map, I know what I'm doing, then to that degree, to the degree of certainty, is the degree of disconnection. Because certainty is never connection. Certainty, whenever we feel certain, there's a fixedness to that. And the mind is identified with an idea. And on the surface, it can give us a sense of direction and a sense of power but it's fragile because it depends on disconnection. And so we gotta 
keep, we don't necessarily see this or even feel this because it's buried, but we're always protecting our certainty of being right. <laughs> like I got the way. And this is really the root of any kind of fundamentalist, fundamentalism, right? It's that endless patching up, endless reasserting, endless need for other people to share our belief. Because there's vulnerability, there's fragility, and weakness, and certainty. And that's a hard lesson for us to learn. Even cynicism is a kind of arrogant certainty, isn't it? That's not it either. And this is the amazing thing that we learn the hard way, all of us, the long and hard way, which is that that tenderness, that softness, that vulnerability allows for the capacity to be connected, to be real, not optimistic and not pessimistic, but real, really connected. And then we find a way, but never, it's never a complete plan. It's only one moment at a time. And you know, this relates to what I was saying about Donna, living with generosity, living with that circle of giving and receiving. It's like, I often use the example like how, I'm just speaking from my own personal experience, you know, when I run into those folks who are often sit on the side of roads asking for money, I often feel the need to defend myself with a plan. I'm not going to give money to them because a lot of them are addicts and I don't want to encourage their addictive behaviors. You know, I got a plan. But if I feel my heart, that doesn't feel good to have that plan because it's a way of me disconnecting. Like, what's really going on is that I'm not trying to keep them from drugs and alcohol. What's really going on is I don't know how and I don't want to feel what I feel in that situation. So I get an idea. I don't want to support their addictions. And I'm going to hold to it. And I'm going to make it work until it doesn't work because it's too heavy. And then, then okay, begrudgingly, I'll do something. For a lot of years, I always had, some of you know, because I used to talk about it, you know, I used to have little nice granola bars or protein bars that I would give people because I, I just wanted to have some interaction. It was a useful step, <laughs> but it was still a lot of the time a way to avoid feeling what I was feeling. Like, I've got a way to manage this uncomfortable, awkward situation because I'll give them something. It will be over in a few seconds and I can go on and I won't be haunted by being the jerk who was addicted to the idea that I don't want to do anything. And so what I try to do, and I, I find it the hardest thing to do, is not to know, not to have a plan, but to have an authentic, and I don't consider myself successful at this, by the way, but to have a successful interaction, human interaction, and not have a plan what that's going to look like or feel like. I don't tell myself what to do or what not to do. And I'm assuming this is not uncommon, you know, that some of you have that same experience. Like, this is really one of those hard things to do. But for me, it really feels like it's in the right direction. 
all those places we feel like the appropriate response is for us to run, to hide, to have a fundamentalist view that we hold to, you know, like around politics. This person's wrong and this person's right. Well, you know where that leads us? The United States of America. <laughs> you know, where we've got strong views and we're just living in different universes most of the time. And it really doesn't work very well. And there's a lot of suffering. So this, uh, this practice then is, you know, we, if we do need a refuge, then one thing to explore, and you could begin in the small groups, is just that place of vulnerability. Where in your lives, where in the different experiences, the different locations that you live, relationships that you're in, have you more successfully embodied that openness, that vulnerability, that not being dependent on a fixed view, a fixed idea, a fixed way of relating, but it feels more alive and scary, but scary in a good way. And because of that vividness, there's more nimbleness, more creativity, and the after flavor is like, feels, tastes like freedom. Like, that felt pretty good. That felt pretty real. No, don't feel haunted by what just happened. Oh, I did that, I said that. But, like, I notice that more and more. Like, even when I do something really awkward or what in the past might be humiliating, I feel more and more, I, I feel this is definitely the fruit of 40-some years of practice now, is like the aftertaste of even awkward, difficult interactions is like just that beautiful confidence that that's about as good as it could have gone, you know? Not that like, oh, you did that perfectly, Mark, but yeah, given the mess of everything, given the complexity of the conditioned habits of this mind, which is not personal. You know, that I was, this heart, mind was conditioned by this culture. It's like, that's not my responsibility in a sense, but I gotta live with it. I gotta find a creative way not to harm myself or others, given my conditioning, you know, around being a male, identified as a male or white, or all these ways that the conditioning I have to learn to creatively live with in our culture. It's always gonna be messy. But more and more just like that quality of forgiveness and patience and humility and like knowing that it isn't over. And that freedom doesn't depend on this personality being perfect or this world, whatever orbit, like my family life world, or the common ground world, or the Minneapolis world, or that none of these worlds have to be perfect. We don't have to postpone freedom. We can just start uncovering it one little relationship at a time. Oh, this is what freedom feels like, looks like here and now. And the mind, wisdom starts to generalize like what we're learning in little relationships, interactions, 
you know, and I, I mentioned this earlier, often it's the more neutral interactions like somebody at a checkout line and we have a 35 second interaction, but it was very real and simple and loving and uncontrived. You weren't the person trying to be compassionate, which is a heavy load, you know? You were just nature, love, interacting with the nature of love. And it was beautiful, nothing heavy left over, just flowers and wholesome scents and, right? Something beautiful. And the more of those little interactions that often begin to happen in more simple, ordinary, safe, not intense situations, then the heart-mind wisdom begins to generalize the underlying principle, like how it is that those moments, what are the supporting conditions that allow those moments to be the way they are? Oh, there was no fear there. There was no fixed somebody trying to do it right. There was just sensitivity, like the heart totally invested in being present. Not totally invested in doing it right, but totally invested in being real, sensitive, open. Because that's how we end up doing it right, you know, skillfully. Not by trying to do it right, but by being sensitive, which means being vulnerable. Because sensitivity requires that we drop any arrogant certainty. So this would be a great topic for the small groups today. Where are those places where for sure you're not ready to drop your arrogant certainty and you feel very dependent on your fixed views? That would be great to share in the small groups. And where are those places, often more simple, ordinary places, where you've had experience of really being vulnerable and not dependent on knowing anything, knowing who you are even. That the dance, the interaction was all there was. And that felt safe enough, not perfectly safe, but safe enough to trust it, trust it enough to taste the aftertaste, which was, well, that feels pretty good. Maybe this is the way that the Buddha points out, that our wise elders point out for us. So I'll leave it here. Really nice to be with everybody today. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.